Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge, where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. Habits are not a finish line to be crossed. They're like a lifestyle to be lived. I think the deeper reason that habits matter is that every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. You can start by asking, who do I wish to become? A lot of people feel like what they lack is motivation but what they really lack is clarity. How are my habits reinforcing the kind of person I wanna be? James Clear is a public speaker, entrepreneur, and author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Atomic Habits. What can you tell me about habits and the connection to money goals? The four laws of behavior change. It's just so unlikely that the first way that you'll try to build a habit is the optimal way for you. How are my habits casting votes for my desired identity. You are the world's leading habit expert. What was the hardest habit for you personally to form? <laughs> I'm Erica Kohlberg, and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between six to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. So with the new year, I'm sure a lot of people have New Year's resolutions. What do you think differentiates the people that will be able to stick with their New Year's resolutions versus the people who won't? That's a good question. I think there are probably two things that come to mind. So the first is, this is very common, I think particularly for ambitious people, it's really easy to sit down and start thinking about 
you know, what could I achieve if I was really dialed in? What would peak performance look like? What are all the things that I want to change? You come up with this list of five or six or seven things you want to do, or maybe it's one thing, but you want to do it in a really impressive way. And we don't explicitly say this, but kind of in the back of your mind, you're like, what would peak performance look like for me? And what habits do I need to get there? And I think instead, when you're getting started with a habit, it's often better to ask, what could I stick to even on the bad days? What could I do even when things aren't going well? And that becomes your baseline. And so rather than doing 100 pushups a day, you're trying to do one or 10 or something like that. Or rather than writing, you know, a 1000 words a day, you're trying to write one sentence. And by scaling it down, you naturally make it much easier to achieve that objective each day. But there's something really important that happens when you scale down your habits, which is you get a couple small wins, you build up this feeling of progress. And one of the most motivating feelings to the human mind is feeling of progress. And so if you feel like you're moving forward, you have every reason in the world to continue with it. But if you pick some huge ambitious goal, and then you know, you do it for six days, and then on the seventh day, you fall off course. Um, now you're starting to feel bad because like, oh, I didn't stick to what I set out to do. But it was just an arbitrary mark that you set in the beginning. So scaling it down can help a lot, I think, for building momentum, and then you can scale it up later. And then the second thing, and I feel like this is something that's often overlooked about habits, but one of the deepest and most important things with it, which is drawing a through line, drawing some kind of connection between the habit that you're performing and the type of person that you want to be. And I refer to this as identity-based habits and atomic habits. It's like this connection between your habits and your identity. And if you think about it, in a lot of ways, your habits are how you embody a particular identity. So every day that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who is clean and organized. If you study, I don't know, biology for 20 minutes on Tuesday night, you embody the identity of someone who's studious. And so these small actions, they provide evidence of being a certain type of person. And I think that this is like the deeper reason that habits matter. We often talk about habits as mattering because of the external results they'll get you. Hey, habits will help you make more money or be more productive or reduce stress or get fit. And it's true, habits can help you do that stuff and that's great. But I think the deeper reason that habits matter is that every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. So no, doing one pushup does not transform your body but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And no, writing one sentence may not finish the novel, but it does cast a vote for I'm a writer. And once you start to take pride in that aspect of your identity and being that kind of person, you'll fight a little bit more to maintain the habit. You know, like you take pride in the size of your biceps, you never skip arm day at the gym. If you take pride in how your hair looks, you have this long hair care routine, you do it every day. You know, it's like the elements or the aspects of our story that we care about are also the habits that we fight to maintain. So I think to answer your question, scale it down. That will help a lot with sticking with New Year's resolutions. And then see if you can draw a connection between your habits and your identity. Who not Rather than starting by asking yourself, what do I wish to achieve? You can start by asking, who do I wish to become? And then see how each action you take is casting a vote for being that kind of person. And I think that is probably a more robust and resilient way to approach your New Year's resolutions. A lot of my audience, I'm guessing, will have a New Year's resolution similar to, I want to become better with my money. So for that, they need to switch it to, I want to be someone who is good with my money. Well, they could certainly do that. I think that's pretty broad and vague. You know, like you can, you're going to have to get a little more specific about which habit you're trying to build. You know, like, for example, 
one way that a lot of people spend money is they feel like they spend too much money eating out at restaurants. And so they maybe want to build a new habit of cooking at home a little bit more. And so now we can start to build an identity around being a cook or I am a cook or I'm the type of person who cooks at home or something like that. And you can come up with a version of that that feels, you know, reasonable for you. But you're trying to find what is the action I'm going to be doing to reinforce this identity and then build the identity around that. My New Year's resolution for the last three or four years has always been the same. It's no sugar, no alcohol. And I just have a massive sweet tooth. I love desserts. So my success range has varied from at the lowest seven days that I've been able to stick with it to at the max, it was three months. Am I good to continue that New Year's resolution or do I need to switch my New Year's resolution now? This is actually, this is very interesting. There are a couple kind of like deeper, important things to talk about here. So the first is, if you do a habit for three months, does that mean it's a success or a failure? And it's interesting, in most people's minds, they feel like it's probably a failure because that, you know, at some point, whether they fell off after seven days or after a month or three months, they're like, oh, see, I knew I, I, knew I wasn't going to be able to stick with that. You know, or like this always happens. I do this thing and then I fall off course or whatever. And the way that I would think about it is that your habits need to evolve with your season in life or with what you're working on at the time. And life is very dynamic. It's not static. So like, let's take my writing habit, for example. I've been an entrepreneur for 12 years now. And I think we could generally say that I have had a pretty good writing habit during that time. For the first three years, I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday. So those were longer pieces, like 1,000 or 2,000 words. And then that eventually led to the book deal where I got Atomic Habits. So then for the next three to five years, I was writing the book. And that looked very different. And then the last four years, I've been writing a newsletter that's weekly, not not twice a week, called 321. And that's much shorter. It's just like three ideas for me, two question, or um, two quotes from other people, and one question to think about. And that takes like two or three hours to write, whereas the articles took like 40 hours a week. So the habit has changed shape so many different times. And I don't think that means that my habit of writing, you know, two days a week for the first three years, that that failed. It's just that uh, I had to find a new shape for that habit to fit with my current life. And so I'm still casting votes for my identity of being a writer, but it just looks different. And I think it's worth it to think about how your habits might need to flex or adapt or change. So maybe there's a different version of it for you this year. You know, maybe you don't eat sugar at home, but you are cool with it if you're, I don't know, at an ice cream shop or out at, you know, out to dinner with somebody and you want to get cake or something. So there can be different forms for habits. I think it's worth thinking about that. Do you think there's a max number of habits that you should be trying to do at the same time? Like is five too many? <laughs> I, so I generally recommend one at a time. Uh, I find that for myself, it's easier to think about one thing I'm trying to install, organize your life around that, get that to be your new normal, and then you can move on to the next change. One of the challenges with building habits, and this is some a way that a truth about habits, but not a way that we typically define it. So usually, if you were to go up to an academic or a researcher and ask them, what is a habit? They're going to tell you that it's a quick, mindless behavior, something that's automatic, like brushing your teeth or tying your shoes or unplugging your toaster after each use, stuff that you like don't even think about. But that's not usually how we talk about habits. We usually talk about habits like oh, I want to go to the gym four days a week, or I want to journal every day, or, you know, I want to meditate every morning, something like that, that requires more effort and concentration. And so your habits are, I think, a nice way to define them is that they are a routine or a behavior that is tied to a particular context. So for example, your habit of watching Netflix, 
is tied to the context of your couch at 8 p.m. And if you sit down on the couch at 8 p.m. and you try to do something else, meditate or journal or something, without even really thinking about it, you're kind of naturally pulled toward grabbing the remote and turning the TV on because that's the habit that usually happens in that space. So if you want to build a new habit, I think one of the cleanest things you can do is pick a context for that habit that does not compete with other things. You've got like a specific chair that becomes the journaling chair or a pillow in the corner that is the meditation pillow or so on. And the more that you can cleanly tie your habits to a particular context, the more likely you are to stick with them. So this comes back to your original question, which is how many habits should I build at once? Well, once you start to realize that the environment is tied to your habits, that you can like optimize the spaces that you live in for the behaviors you want to perform, you start to see that it can get hard to do five or six or seven things at once because you can only optimize the space for one or two things at a time. So for all of those reasons, I think it's best to focus on building one habit and then move on to the next. I think in your book, you gave this example of if you want to be someone who works out, just put workout shoes in front of your bed right before you go to sleep or something like that, right? Priming the environment for the next use is a really powerful strategy for building habits. So the example you gave, like put your workout shoes out, or I even have some readers who will sleep in their workout shorts, and then all they got to do is throw a shirt on when they get up and go work out. You're just trying to reduce friction and make it really obvious what you do next. For my writing habit, one of the things that I do, I've realized that the biggest point of friction for me is do I start writing the first sentence of what I'm supposed to work on? Or when I sit down at the computer, do I open up my favorite website or go to social media or something like that? And then all of a sudden, you know, an hour slips away and I haven't started writing yet. So a lot of the time I'll actually write out the first sentence that I'm going to write or write the topic that I'm going to write about, put it on a post-it note and then stick it right on top of the keyboard so that when I sit down the next time, all I have to do is just open up a Google Doc and start writing that sentence. And now I'm into the work and it's a little bit less friction. So I make it very obvious what to do next. Anyway, so environment plays a big role in that sense. Do you find that especially for habits that require creativity? So for example, for me, scripting TikToks requires creativity. So it's not something I really want to sit down and force myself at 2 p.m. to do. I kind of have to wait for the creativity to strike and then that's what I want to write. But then that leads to not being very consistent with scripting TikTok. So is it better to force yourself to do it at a certain time, do you think? Obviously, habits are very individual. And so what is best is to do whatever works best for you. I think that's the ultimate answer. However, as someone else who also has kind of a creative writing habit, in my case, it's not TikToks, but it's newsletters or blog posts or things like that. I have noticed this interesting dynamic. And actually, uh, yesterday was a perfect example of it. So I, I wrote a newsletter yesterday, and I published it. And for a variety of reasons, it was not optimal. And I, if I did not have the expectation of people waiting for it to come out, I would not have published yesterday. And so that just kind of like forced me to get it out on the schedule. And that is one advantage of having a schedule is that it will force you to show up when you otherwise would not. So the work got done, even if it was kind of mediocre, and maybe something good came out of that, you know, maybe the whole thing wasn't good, but maybe one or two sentences were good. And so at least I wrote one or two sentences that I wouldn't have otherwise. When I was writing articles more, I had this exercise I would do each time, which is I would force myself to brainstorm 25 potential titles. And what's interesting about that is that the best title, the one that I would select, it was never in the first like five. Uh, it was almost always like number 17 or number 22 or number 14. 
And what I eventually realized, and this is, I think, true of my entire creative process, I have to create a lot of trash first, and then I just need to filter through it and the good ideas start to bubble up. And I also find, particularly if you're trying to come up with creative titles or creative TikTok concepts or whatever, the first things that you think about are almost always top of mind. That's why you think about them first. And if they're top of mind for you, they're probably top of mind for a lot of other people too. And so the first ideas are often the common ones, the, the typical ones. And you really only get to the creative ideas once you've generated a little bit of trash and kind of worked through that. There's a great clip of Ed Sheeran, the musician, where he talks about writing songs. And he equates it to like turning on a faucet. And he was like, you know, when I first start writing and working, I turn the faucet on and there's a lot of muddy water coming out. And I have to keep working through it until the water starts to run clear. And then I start to get some good ideas. So at a base level, I'll say whatever works for you is fine. Uh, if I'm trying to give like an answer for what I feel like the best way is to attack a creative problem like that, I think the value of having a schedule to stick to, whether it's sitting down at 2 p.m. and brainstorming that or whenever, the value is that it forces you to sit down and start producing some trash. And if you can figure out how to sit with the concepts for long enough and keep uh, generating ideas, I bet you find after 30 minutes or an hour that you've got something really creative and good there. And it was actually the act of sitting down and forcing yourself to do it that got the early work out of the way so that the later work could be good. I know, of course, like my audience thinks about money. They all have their money goals. I really want to help them break down how they can be successful with their money goals this year. So whether it's getting out of debt or investing more, saving more money or getting a raise, what can you tell me about habits and the connection to money goals? Sure. So let me lay out like kind of a big picture framework, and then we can start talking about ways to apply it. So this is something I cover in Atomic Habits. But if you want a habit to be built, if you want to build a good habit that sticks, there are kind of four things that you want working for you. And I refer to them as the four laws of behavior change. So the first law is you want to make it obvious. So you want the cues of your good habits to be obvious, available, visible, easy to see. Easier it is to see or get your attention, the more likely are to act on it. The second law is to make it attractive. The more attractive or appealing a habit is, the more motivating or enticing it is, the more likely you are to feel compelled to do it. The third law is to make it easy. The easier, more convenient, frictionless, simple a habit is, the more likely it is to be performed. And then the fourth and final law is to make it satisfying. So the more satisfying or enjoyable a habit is, the more pleasurable or rewarding it is, the more you associate it with some kind of positive emotion and feeling good, the more likely you are to fall through on it. So if you're sitting there and you're listening to the us talk and you're thinking, you know, I have this certain habit, I really love to stick to this next year, but I keep procrastinating on it. Or maybe, you know, I do this every now and then, but I wish I was more consistent with it. You can just go through those four laws and ask yourself, how can I make the behavior more obvious? How can I make it more attractive? How can I make it easier? How can I make it more satisfying? And the answers to those four questions will help reveal different steps that you can take. So there are many ways to do each of those things. But from a big picture view, you're trying to make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, and make it satisfying. So if the goal is I want to get out of credit card debt this year, the habits have to be around how to save more money. Like, I realize that I'm eating out too much, so I need to save more money. So then you have to work through the four laws that way. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one because, you know, getting out of debt could mean a lot of different things in terms of like how you're is the problem that you're still spending too much. And so you need to like cut down there. 
how do you have the spending in line? And actually what you need to focus on is making the payments and paying down the, the principal or paying down the debt. So yeah, it's going to, obviously it's going to depend, but let me give you a couple ways of thinking about it. So let's just work through these four laws and see some different examples of how they might apply. So if we take, make it obvious, so that's the first law, then we're trying to make things obvious in our environment that are the type of things we want to act on. So for example, Oh, and I should mention, this is definitely going to be relevant to this one. So make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. That's the big picture view for building a good habit. If you want to break a bad habit, then you just invert those four. So rather than making it obvious, when you, when you want to make it invisible. Rather than making it attractive, make it unattractive. Rather than making it easy, make it uh, difficult. And rather than making it satisfying, make it unsatisfying. For the first law, make it invisible in this case. I want to, I want to make it invisible for me to spend money on my credit card. Well, you're not going to be, be able to totally eliminate it, but you can start working your way through the list of things you spend money on. You know, like let's say that you have an online shopping habit and a lot of the money that you spend is on clothes or different items that you're buying. Well, stop following influencers on Instagram that are going to be showing you some of those products. You keep, pro you know, you keep like surfacing the queue in front of yourself and then, you know, that sparks the action. So that's one example of make it invisible. That's like a small thing you could do. So on the other side, let's say that you're spending a lot of money on your credit card eating out at restaurants. And like we said a, minute, a couple minutes ago, you'd like to stay at home and cook more. Well, now we could go rather than make it invisible, you can make it obvious what to do to cook. So you could, for example, in each morning, you could decide what you're going to have for dinner and write the recipe down, set it on the counter so that you see it when it's time to order dinner. Rather than picking up your phone, you already have pre-decided what you're going to do. And it's now obvious what the choice is going to be. Or you could take some of the cookware and set it out so that it's already there and primed and prepped. My wife used to do this for a long time. She didn't have a ton of time in the morning before she would have to go to work. And so the night before, she would set out all the things that she needed to, you know, make an omelet or whatever. She put the skillet out and the spatula and all that, and she just would walk into the kitchen and be ready to go. So this principle of prime the environment to make either your desired action easy or structure the environment so that you don't see the undesired thing that's an example of applying the first law. And with something as broad as credit card debt, you might need to do that for four or five different specific little things. But making all of those changes collectively can lead to a powerful result. The second law, make it attractive. I actually think this one, so this is something I wish I had written in the book, but I didn't. Whenever you're thinking about a habit that you want to build, I think it's worth it to ask yourself a very crucial question, which is, what would this look like if it was fun? You know, so the idea of paying down credit card debt does not sound fun to anybody, but you can start to think about, well, okay, what kind of lifestyle changes does that require? And what would the more fun version of that be? Let me give an example. So if we continue this restaurant idea where you're trying to not eat out at restaurants and cook at home, well, to me, that doesn't sound that fun. Cooking sounds like work. And uh, I didn't have to do that before. I have a friend who his wife does a very interesting thing, which is, and it started during COVID. They were locked down. They, she was going to be cooking a lot. And she was like, I just want to find a way to make this enjoyable. And they really like travel. And so she started uh, making a recipe each night from a country that they had visited. And so that started and got them, you know, got her through the first week or two. And then she just continued it. And so she just started researching. She has now made recipes from 94, 95 different countries. And that's a way for her to make it fun. And so you should try to figure out the version of your habit that sounds more enjoyable to you. That doesn't mean 
that every habit that you do is going to feel like the most fun thing in your life. You know, it's not going to feel like going to a concert or something. But most areas of life, there may not be a thousand ways to do something, but there's almost always more than one way. And you should think about the version of your habit that is more exciting than the default. You know, I think a lot of people go to the gym in January because they kind of feel like they should exercise or society wants them to go to the gym or something. But not everybody wants to work out like a bodybuilder, and that's fine. You know, we can come up with a very long list of what it means to live an active lifestyle. You could do yoga or kayak or rock climb or whatever, and you should choose the version of that habit that's most enticing to you. So that's an example of making it attractive. So those are those are like two very practical ways to take the concept and try to apply it to paying down your credit card debt. 2024 is here, and there are so many of you eager to kickstart your businesses and achieve your goals. Having a good website is a no-brainer for any business, and often it's one of the first impressions people get about your business and your brand. That's where Hostinger comes in. Hostinger is the go-to solution for building a professional website effortlessly, and they're one of the top web hosting and website creation brands in the world. What I love is that whether you want a business website or an e-commerce store, their user-friendly software means you need no coding skills or technical expertise. When I was first building my online business, I had to do it all myself, and it took hundreds of hours for me to figure out how to build a website. For you, it's going to be a lot easier because of Hostinger's AI website builder. You just need to answer three simple questions and AI will create the website for you with SEO-friendly copy designed to attract traffic to your website. And if you're not fully happy with it, you can just use their drag and drop feature to customize it. Best of all, it costs only $3 per month. One of the key things I've learned in business is that the easier you make it to get started, the higher chances you have for success and making money. That's why I love Hostinger. They just make it so easy for you to get started online. Head to hostinger.com slash Erica10 and use code Erica10 for an exclusive 10% discount. 2024 is the year to achieve your business goals. That's hostinger.com slash Erica10. Erica with a K to get your 10% discount. I'll also put the link in the show notes and now back to the episode. When you were saying make it invisible, I saw this online once where if you're struggling with credit card debt, put duct tape over your credit card and then freeze it in a big ice cube in the freezer so that if you want <laughs> to spend on that, you have to wait for the ice to melt away before you can find the credit card. I think something like that would be useful for people. Yeah, this is great. This is actually, so I would, um, definitely you're making it uh, invisible or less likely to be seen by putting it in the freezer. Um, I think this is also a combination tactic because it uses make it invisible and it uses make it difficult, which it would be like the, the inversion of the third law. So for good habits, you want to make them as easy as possible. You know, you want to try to make it frictionless. For bad habits, you want to make it really difficult. Put steps between you and the behavior. And having to wait for a block of ice to melt is about as difficult as it gets. I do this with my phone as well. You know, I think we all feel feel this with our smartphones that we kind of, they're very powerful and they can be very useful, but also we probably are looking at them more than we want to. And, you know, they kind of occupy this huge amount of space in our lives. And so I can't do this every day. But probably seven out of 10 days, I will leave my phone in another room until lunch. And I almost always have a better uh, day when I do that. You know, so I have a home office. So if my phone is next to me, I am like everyone else. I will check it every three minutes just because it's there. But 
if I leave it in another room, it's only 30 seconds away. And yet I never go get it. And I always think that's so interesting. You know, it's like, did I want it or not? Like in the one sense, I wanted it bad enough that I would look at it every three minutes. But in another sense, I never wanted it so bad that I would work for 30 seconds to go get it. And you'd be surprised how many of your habits are like that. If you introduce a little bit of friction, you'll reduce them to the desired degree. For social media, I did a similar kind of thing as the ice block strategy. So I just thought, you know what? I'm looking at this stuff way too much. It's taking up too much of my time. I'm just going to delete the apps. And if I really want to log in, I'll download them. And I went like six months without downloading them. I just, I, it's not that I never use them. I just only use it on desktop and not on my phone. And it's interesting how often I, if you would have looked at my Instagram usage, you would have been like, wow, this must be a really important part of his life. Look at how much time he's spending on it. But in fact, after I deleted it, I just didn't even download it for six months because it was just something I was doing when I was bored for 20 seconds. And that 20 seconds turned into four minutes or 10 minutes. And you do that 10 times a day and you've lost an hour and a half, you know? So anyway, your point about the ice cube is a good one, which is make it difficult to do the habits that you don't want to do. And you often find that that friction reduces the behavior to the desired degree. For the phone, this one turned out to be a bit too extreme for me, but there is a little thing you can order on Amazon that's basically like a Tupperware for your phone that you lock. So you put your phone in there and then you lock it for a set amount of time, like three hours. And so I used it for a bit. But then I got too anxious. It's like a programmable safe for keeping your, your phone locked <laughs> up. Yeah. <laughs> but then I was like, what if there's an emergency? And I had all these reasons to justify why it's not a good idea to use. So then I stopped that. Yeah. I'll tell you the big one that I've done recently that has surprised me that I've been able to stick with it is I deleted email from my phone. And what I eventually realized was that if I'm being honest with myself, there's probably only like two times a year when I need to send an email, actually need to send it, and I only have my phone around me. And so I thought, well, if I really have to send an email that bad, I'll just download Gmail again, and then I'll send it. And I deleted it, you know, eight or nine months ago, and I still haven't had to do it. So I, I don't know, it just uh, a lot of these things that we kind of assume are like so essential in our lives, they can be reduced in some way, and you end up being just fine. There's so many habits like that. I remember after reading Tim Ferriss's book, he says only check your email once a day or twice a day. So I did it for the first week or so after I read the book and was so inspired. But then I just kind of fall off the wagon. Yeah, I can't do it. I, I don't I don't know. I know that batching your emails like that is for sure like more effective. But I don't know something about it just doesn't like seem to work for my brain. I'm like, oh, I kind of feel like I need to be checking in. But that's why it's good for me to do more extreme things like delete the app off the phone, because then that just prevents it from happening. And I got to move on. I actually I'm sure I looked like a big dummy for the first like week. I kept picking my phone up and then looking at it. But there's like nothing to do. There's no social media. There's no email. I'm just like staring at a screen I'm like, well, I guess I'll put it back in my pocket. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think we all would like to have habits like that that are make us a little bit more productive. But I also try not to worry about it too much because I think ultimately, the most important thing is, are you working on the right projects? Are you directing your attention to the high value things? And sure, you know, social media and email are going to rob some of your attention and you wish you had that half hour or hour back a day. But if you're spending the other hours well, it's probably not too, it's not too problematic to and you don't want to like major in the minor things. You know, you're trying to keep the big picture stuff front and center. I know you were saying that People generally should only focus on one habit at a time. When do you consider that habit formed and therefore you can work on creating the next habit? 
Yeah, that's a good question. You'll hear all kinds of things. You know, there's all kinds of 21 days to build a habit, 28 days, 30 days, 90 days. There was one study that found that on average, it took about 66 days to build a habit. And if you actually read the study, though, the range is quite wide. So building a simple habit like drinking a glass of water at lunch might only take you a couple weeks. And then something more complicated, like going for a run after work every day might be seven or eight or nine months. And I think if you zoom out just a little bit and start to brainstorm like real life scenarios, imagine one person who's trying to get in the habit of running who lives on their own. And then another person who's trying to get in the habit of running who lives with a bunch of athletes and everybody's already working out. And it's like, oh, I could do this with my friends. And then a third person who's trying to run and they live with nobody who works out. And it's kind of going against the grain of the group for them to try to install this new habit. All three of those people are in very different situations, and that's probably going to lead to different times of formation for the habit. So I don't even know that that range tells you very much. The average was 66 days, and so you'll see people cite that a lot. But I think the honest answer to how long does it take to build a habit is forever. Because if you stop doing it, it's no longer a habit. And what I mean by that and what I'm trying to encourage people to see is that Habits are not a finish line to be crossed. They're like a lifestyle to be lived. I think a lot of people feel like, oh, well, if I just do this for 30 days, the habit will be established and then I'll be a healthy person. I won't have to think about it anymore. And I'm trying to push back against that a little bit and be like, listen, what we're looking for is a sustainable change, a non-threatening change, something you feel like you can integrate into your life. It's a practice, a way of living. And we're trying to find a way of living that feels sustainable and that you can continue to improve upon. And once you have that lens, I think maybe you look at the changes a little bit differently. You're not trying to just like do something impressive for a short amount of time and then it'll be automatic and you won't have to worry about it anymore. Okay, I'm going to push back a little because maybe I'm still confused. So if I can only build one habit at a time and you're saying habit formation will take a lifetime, then should I only create one habit for my lifetime or do I just have the wrong mentality around this? No, 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 that's fair. So, um... There are these things called automaticity curves, and that's what all these studies use to decide how automatic a habit becomes and when it's more or less mindless or ingrained or installed in your life. And I think as a an operating model, you can assume that depending on the habit, somewhere between three and 12 months is probably how long it's going to take for you to hit this kind of feeling where it's like, oh, yeah, this is part of my life now. This is automatic. This is kind of the type of thing that I do. And I would argue that you're not only looking for this shift in behavior where it becomes more fluent and more uh, frictionless, but you're also looking for a, at least a small shift in your mindset about it. You know, like if you go out and you shoot a basketball for, you know, 10 minutes today, you don't suddenly think, oh, I'm a basketball player. But if you do that every day for the next six months or the next year or two years, at some point you cross this invisible threshold where you're like, well, I guess playing basketball is kind of part of my personality or it's part of part of who I am. And all habits can sort of be like that, where you at some point you kind of kind of hit this transition, this like inflection point where you're like, it feels more a part of you than not. It feels like, oh, this is kind of the person that I am. And I would say that that is the time when a habit is kind of ingrained in your life and you can move on and try to find a new thing to focus on and, and build. That makes sense. So where it's no longer like something that you're checking off your list for, I've completed this habit for today when it really feels like a core of who you are. Right. It kind of feels like you. I've heard some people put it like it's when you notice not doing it 
You know, it's like if you don't do it, something kind of feels off or you feel like, oh, I, you know, I, I'm not doing the thing I normally am doing or like I'm missing that today. And that I think is a sign that, yeah, the habits established. So you mentioned the 66 days is, was kind of misconstrued in a way. What other research out there about habits that a lot of people know do you think is just misinterpreted? Well, I don't know about research, but there are like a lot of common myths about habits or things that misconceptions that people have. I would say one of the most common things you hear people say is something like, it's hard to change your habits, you know, or it's difficult to change behavior. In reality, it, changing your behavior is actually one of the most common things that you do. Your brain, one of your brain's primary jobs is to change your behavior based on the people you're around, the room that you're in, the context you're facing. You're changing your actions all the time. What is difficult is to design your behavior. And so to be in control of the process, to be proactive about your habits and what you're doing, rather than to be reactive to the environment. That can be much trickier. So this kind of leads into a second thing, which I think people don't necessarily realize. A lot of people feel like which, what they lack is motivation, but what they really lack is clarity. You know, I think a lot of people wake up each morning and they have this vague notion of, you know, I hope I can make good money decisions today, or I hope that I have motivation to work out today. I hope I feel like writing today. And there's kind of these, uh, this general thought of like, maybe the time will arise and I'll make the right choice. And instead, if you have clarity where it's like, I know that I'm making my lunch for work today, or I know that I'm going to go to the gym at 4 p.m., or I know that my writing habit happens at 9 a.m. in my office, by having a very clear set of, it's almost like a rule, but it's essentially like you've pre-decided when and where the habit's going to occur, you're much more likely to follow through on it. And there's a wealth of research that shows that, that if you, everything from if you schedule the time and date that you're going to get your flu shot, you're more likely to fall through. If you come up with a plan for when and where you're going to recycle, you're more likely to fall through. If you come up with a plan for when and where you're going to exercise, you're two to three times more likely to go to the gym. Like there, there are all sorts of studies that show that. And it sounds so obvious to say you should have a plan for when and where your habit is going to occur. But the reality is, even though that's straightforward, most people don't do it. And so by actually knowing when and where specifically this habit's going to live, you're much more likely to actually take action. That makes sense. I used to be so against spending money to work out and so against personal trainers and spending money on these workout classes. But I realize now it's the only thing that motivates me because I'm spending money. I'm wasting their time if I don't show up. And for a lot of these classes that you book, the fitness classes, they have a penalty where if you cancel within 12 hours, they'll charge you like half the amount, which I can't, can't stomach paying. So, so that has actually helped me. That's a good example of both. You're like making it more attractive to get up and go exercise, but you're also making it unattractive to skip, you know? And so you're kind of like working on the habit from both sides. And that's a, that's a great motivator. At some level, it comes down to sitting down, thinking about the habit that you want to build, and then brainstorming a little bit of what that might look like for your life. Like go through those four laws. What would it look like to make it obvious, attractive, easy, and satisfying? And then for breaking a bad habit, what would it look like to make it un uh, invisible, unattractive, difficult, unsatisfying? And you're probably going to need to sit with that for 30 or 60 minutes and try to come up with some ideas. And eventually, you'll stumble across a collection of changes that are all going to feel like they're working for you. And this is something I say in the book, the holy grail of habit change is not like a single 1% improvement. It's a 1000 of them. It's a bunch of little habits, collectively, 
that you aggregate into a meaningful change. It's building a system for change, not just making one change and then thinking, oh, this should change everything for me. I'm obsessed with efficiency and anything that allows me to save time for my business. Tools, software, I'm in. If you're trying to grow your business and love efficiency, you should know these three numbers. 37,251. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. There's tremendous power in having all the information in one place. If you're obsessed with efficiency like I am, then right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com slash Erica. That's netsuite.com slash Erica to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash Erica. I'll put the link in the show notes. Now back to the episode. If you're listening, let me guess, you have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, People who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura, and I'll also leave the link in the show notes. So a lot of my audience, I know that they're working actively to improve their finance habits and their budgeting habits. I know you have this concept called habit stacking. Can you talk about that and how they can apply that to their lives? Sure. So this is something I cover in Atomic Habits. The concept originally came from the Stanford professor named BJ Fogg. And he he had an interesting concept, I think is a really nice insight, which is that it's easier to build a habit if it is connected or stacked on top of a habit that you already have. So for example, let's say that you already have a habit of uh, making a cup of coffee in the morning, and you want to start the habit of meditating, you could say after I make my morning cup of coffee, 
I will meditate for 60 seconds. And so you've kind of stacked those two behaviors together and you've given yourself a really clean place for the new habit to live in your life. And I think this is something a lot of people struggle with, whether it's budgeting or other habits. They want to do it, but there just isn't a clean space for it to live in their daily routine. They kind of, they get to the end of the day and they realize, oh, I forgot to check my finances again, or oh, we, I didn't make time for that this week or this month. And so I think it's worth it to think about what would a habit stack look like for your budgeting habit? And there, there are sort of two steps to think about here. So the first step is you can just do what I call a habit scorecard. So you're going to write down all of the habits that you do throughout the day. So you can start, you can be as granular as you want. I think it's worth it to, to get pretty tactical with it. And so you start with when you wake up and then you just list out all the habits that you do. So I wake up, I turn off my alarm on my phone, I go to the bathroom, I take a shower, I brush my teeth, I get dressed, I, you know, and you go all the way through your day. And once you have that full list there of the things that you typically do, you can start to look through it and try to identify what are one or two or three of these that it might make sense to use that as the stack for my budgeting habit. Like that's the place where I could insert that and I've got maybe five minutes or 10 minutes after that for to review my finances and it makes sense for it to live at that part of my day. Let's say, for example, that you decide it's after you sit down to um, start to eat breakfast in the morning. You're going to sit at your kitchen table, you'll crack your laptop open, and then you'll review your finances real quick. Well, your habit stack might be something like, I walk into the kitchen, I make my cup of coffee. After I make my cup of coffee, I you know make some eggs for myself. And then after I make my eggs and sit down at the table, um, I immediately open my laptop and start working on uh, reviewing my finances. And... Once you get good at this, you can start to layer in a couple different things. Like you could even do it inside of the habit, you know, depending on like where your money is, you could say, you know, at first I check my bank account, then I go to my investments, then I go and check my credit cards, then I, and so you do it in the same way every, every time. And the interesting thing is that it kind of leads to this little feeling of momentum. It, it actually will, I've heard from people who, once they start to build a budgeting habit, it bleeds into other areas of li their life. Like they feel like going to the gym or something. They, the momentum kind of like carries them into other good habits as well. So that's how you use the strategy, all right? You can try to find a specific place for it to live. And it can take a lot of different shapes. I actually have a reader who, this is one of the more surprising habits I've heard about, but he loved working out. He's like huge, like fitness bro. And so he was drinking protein shakes every day. He's like, well, that's a habit I always do. And so his habit stack for him became, I after I drink my protein shake, I will check my finances, do my budgeting. And so it was like such a such an incredible stack, but um, it got him to do it. And so I, I think the question for yourself is like, what is that and where is the right space for that to live in your day? And by making it short and quick and giving it a real clean place to live, you uh, make it obvious for when you're supposed to do that. I think that's really good. I've been habit stacking, I guess, without re realizing what it was because my friend told me that when I brush my teeth, I hate working out. So when I brush my teeth, I should do squats while I'm brushing my teeth. And I guess I've been habit stacking. <laughs> so let me give you another strategy. This could apply to budgeting or, or to other uh, habits like the one you just mentioned. So they're very similar, but technically habit stacking is you do one thing and then it leads to the next and then you do that thing and it leads to the next and so on. And you're kind of like creating this chain of behaviors and a little bit of momentum that carries you forward. There's another strategy. This one's from a researcher named Katie Milkman at Wharton. And this one's called temptation bundling. And the idea is we all have things that we don't really feel like doing. So in your case, you're talking about exercising or budgeting might be another one. Uh, there, are many, there are many habits that are like this. But we also all have things that we love doing or that we find exciting. 
And so temptation bundling is when you merge those two things. So you take something that you want to do and you pair it with something that you need to do. So for example, you may need to fold the laundry, but you just don't feel like doing it. And what you want to do is watch your favorite show on Netflix. And so you create this little rule where you say, I'm only allowed to watch this show if I'm also folding laundry. And so by combining the, what you want to do and what you need to do, suddenly it's much more compelling to fold laundry because that means you get to watch your favorite show. Uh, in the case of Milkman, she so she was really into the Hunger Games books at the time when she thought this up. And she all she wanted to do was keep reading the series. But she was like, I need to go to the gym and work out. So her little rule was, I'm only allowed to read these books if I'm on the treadmill. Um, or in your case, you're only allowed to, to brush your teeth if you're also doing squats uh, in the middle of it. So by pairing what you want to do and what you need to do, that's also another way to make some of these habits a little more compelling. I like that. So I think also with budgeting, what I've realized from teaching budgeting to so many people is once you get the satisfaction of seeing that it's actually working, that, oh, I've actually saved $10 this month just from these simple actions, those micro wins give you the motivation to keep going too. And it kind of becomes an identity. Is that For sure. Right? And also, it's so it becomes an identity or it starts, let's say, it might take a while for it to become your identity, but let's at least say it is casting votes for your identity and it feels good to build up that progress. Also, you are getting those micro wins and it starts to become a self-fulfilling cycle. You know, it starts to perpetuate itself because you've got some progress and momentum going forward. And I'm glad you brought this up because this is actually a very important dynamic with all habits, which is that one of the challenges with building better habits is that in the beginning, whether it's the first day or week or month, you do the right thing and you show up and you're working hard and you have almost nothing to show for it. You know, people feel like, man, I've been budgeting for a week, but like my finances are still a mess. Why would I do this next week? Or I've been running for a month. I still can't see a change in my body. Why would I show up to the gym again? So this is a hallmark of any compounding process, which is the greatest returns are delayed. And so in the beginning, there's not that much to look for. And that's one reason why it's nice to have either temptation bundling, where you're able to have this little bit of a reward in the moment, or you're able to draw a connection between your desired identity and the action that you're doing. You need some reason in the moment while you're waiting for those long-term rewards to show up to keep doing it and to feel like I'm making progress, I'm on the right path, and so on. So external rewards, I think, can play a crucial role in the beginning, even if ultimately it's going to be the process itself and the small wins that you get and the way that you feel and the type of person you're becoming that helps the habit stick in the long run. With budgeting, I found that the concept is so boring to many people, but if you give them those instant wins, they'll start to get excited about it. So oftentimes I'll do this free savings challenge where I have a bunch of people come and I teach them how to budget. And I am all about giving them instant wins. So I find that on the first day, I make them cancel a subscription. Doesn't matter if they can, like, if it's their Netflix subscription, if they want it down the road, that's fine. But today they have to cancel it. And this month they have to save the $15 or whatever. And that instant win helps them then get to day two. And the next instant win is something like, you know, instead of going to eat out that day, you need to cook at home. And then you kind of, with budgeting, if you can take a look at the past 30 days, what have you spent on? Start crossing off the low-hanging fruit. What are the things that you spent on that really didn't matter to you much and you won't cry by losing them? If you can cross those out day by day, you can give yourself these little micro wins throughout the month. And then I think after a month, 
you're kind of into the budget, or at least I get into it. That's a great example. And I think you're, so you're building momentum. You're also, I mentioned earlier, what would this look like if it was fun? Well, saving money is fun. And so it's nice to see yourself making progress. So I think the instant wins concept is great. And you can actually apply it to many different habits. I just talked to a woman who she wanted to um, eat salads more and just eat more greens. And she found that, and this is this could directly tie to finances as well, of course, because if you're you know bringing your lunch or making a salad, you're probably saving money as well. But she found that it just like didn't sound that fun to her, and she only felt like it would count if it was like a perfect salad, you know, like there had to be some kind of purity to it, where it was like, is this healthy for me? And eventually, she was able to shift her mindset to she. I think she said, I want each salad to be a party in a bowl, and I thought that was a good phrase for it, you know, where it was like. She's trying to find ways to make it as fun as possible. So she would even in the early weeks, she would like crumple up potato chips and like sprinkle those on top or whatever. And the goal was just to like get her to start making salads and to do it. And then once she got to the point where she was bringing in a salad like 90% of days, well, now there's all types of ways to improve. Now there's all kinds of ways to optimize. And so you can focus on making it healthier and figuring out different recipes and all that type of thing. And so I think that basic idea of how can I give myself a little bit of an instant win? How can I make this fun? How can I make it feel like I want to do this today and get it established and then optimize and scale up later? I'm curious, you are the world's leading habit expert. What was the hardest habit for you personally to form? <laughs> yeah, I there's this funny thing. You write a book about habits and everyone kind of assumes that you have your habits dialed in. Yeah, and you're perfect. But in reality, <laughs> I my publisher said this to me at one point. I was lamenting how much writing Atomic Habits was like wrecking my own habits. And she was like, uh, well, we write the books we need. And that definitely resonates with me. I, you know, all pretty much everything I write about at some level is a reminder to myself. And so I've struggled with all the same things everybody else struggles with. Two that come to mind that were particularly hard for me. So the first one, I'm pretty good about getting enough sleep, but I'm pretty bad about going to sleep at the right time. So what I found was that it would get to be like 9 p.m. or so, and I would catch like a second wind, and I'd be like, well, let me just check email for a minute, you know? And of course, it's never just a minute, and then you turn around, and it's like midnight or one, you're still working. And I was like, so, you know, so then I'm sleeping in the next morning, and then the whole next day is thrown off, and... So it was years before I started to get that more in line. I will still occasionally have a day where I'm up later, but usually I'm in bed between 10 and 11 now. And that's like definitely a, a marked improvement. Hilariously, the thing that changed it was getting a dog. And I would do the same thing as I normally would, but the dog doesn't care. The dog wants to get up at 6 a.m. and go for a walk. And you only do that for a few days and you're like, this is stupid. I'm get, I'm going to bed at nine. Like, I'm not going to keep keep doing this. And so I think the lesson for that is that often if you have some kind of big shift in seasons in your life, getting a dog, having a kid, getting married, moving to a new city, starting a new project, there, there are a lot of different inflection points in life. But that often signals a change in habits too. And it may take you a little while to learn that you need new habits, but a change in seasons can lead to a very big change in habits. And then the other one that I have struggled with or did struggle with for many years, it's basically, basically eating healthy, I think is the broad way to put it. But I, I could get away with it when I was younger. And then, you know, as you get a little bit older, you're like, well, you know, I was always good about working out and, and getting enough sleep, but nutrition was the one that I never focused on enough. And again, I tried many different things. I, I can remember I downloaded my fitness pal 
and I didn't even use it for a day. I tracked one meal and I was like, this is a pain in the ass. I'm not going to do this anymore. And so eventually, about three years later, what did end up working was I started tracking in the spreadsheet. And I once I got like the 25 meals that I ate the most loaded in there, I could just copy and paste them each time I did it. And that was probably like 80% of my meals. And so tracking became much easier. And um, I had a coach who would email me once a week and check in. And the combination of those two things, for whatever reason, that worked. And I think the, the main lesson I'm trying to impart with these examples is that I knew what to do. I wrote a book about habits. It's not like I didn't know the strategies. And yet still, it took a couple years for me to figure it out. And so if you try a new habit and it doesn't work right away, don't beat yourself up over it. It is very normal. And there needs to be some willingness to experiment. There needs to be some willingness to try new things. It's just so unlikely that the first way that you'll try to build a habit is the optimal way for you. Out of the whole universe of possibilities of things you could do and ways you could do it, it's very unlikely the first one you pick is the best one. So be open to trying new things, to trying new strategies. My view is that there is no one way to best build better habits. There are many ways. And I'm just trying to lay all the tools out on the table and your job is to say, you know what, I'm going to try the hammer today, or I'm going to try the wrench, I'm going to try the screwdriver. And then based on how that goes, you can figure out the right collection of tools for your particular situation. For the habit about going to sleep at a reasonable time on time, do you think it also helped in addition to getting the dog that you stopped reading emails at a certain time? Is that something you did? Well, I didn't specifically make that rule, but that is what ended up happening. So I think that's the real problem. The problem wasn't that I was like staying up too late. That was the consequence. The problem was I needed to stop checking email and working at night. You know, that that was the real like if we're looking at like what was the root cause, the root cause is don't open up your email inbox. I had a friend who had a similar thing that he wanted to try to do. And he actually had a very interesting strategy. It reminds me of the programmable safe for your phone that you mentioned earlier. There's a thing called an outlet timer, and it's just like an adapter that you can plug into an outlet and it will kill the power from that outlet at a set time. And so he plugged his internet router into it. And uh, at 10 p.m. every night, the internet would shut off. And so um, suddenly he's like, well, there's not nearly as many interesting things to do. And I don't have, you know, I can't like be checking my email and stuff. So I guess I'm going to go to sleep. And so you can take little strategies like that that will also, you know, usher you along. I think that's smart. That is one of the habits that I'm going to be working on this year is trying to get more sleep and more consistent sleep. And I just found the same thing. It'll be like 11.59 p.m. and I say, okay, I'm going to go to sleep at midnight. I'm going to turn off my computer. And then 11.59, there's a crisis email that comes in that keeps me up until 2 or 3 a.m. And it just always seems to happen. And I just get really stressed at night because I have my computer and my phone's all on. You know, there are a variety of things you can do. You could charge your phone in another room, you know, keep it in the kitchen after 10 p.m. or something so you don't even see it or, you know, something like that. The outlet timer one is an interesting one. It also makes me think like you could do it to shut the internet off so that you can go to sleep, but you also could do it so that you don't have bin shopping late at night or something like that, you know, like if that's a common uh, spending habit for you. Hey, that's a good finance tip that we should say. If you are in the habit of bin shopping too, Amazon and all those places make it so easy to save your credit card information. So just don't save it. Force yourself to have to type it in every single time manually if you want to buy something. Yeah, that's great. Anything that you can do to increase friction. So that's just another little example of making it difficult. 
any bad habit, how can I make it difficult? Or how can I make it invisible? How can I make it unattractive? How can I make it difficult? How can I make it unsatisfying? And um, that's a good example of making it difficult. My team wanted me to ask you a question. They said, how can you get me to stop procrastinating so much? <laughs> oh man, this like stings. It resonates so much. You're like the bottleneck in your own business. This is, <laughs> I feel like this is the thing that I'm best at. Yeah, it's hard. Creative businesses are hard because at some point it's like your brain is the thing that needs to generate the next step and uh, everybody's just kind of waiting on that. What are you usually procrastinating on? Well, I've been a procrastinator for as long as I can remember. Like in college, if an essay was due at 11.59 p.m., I would start it at 10 p.m. because I knew it would take me about two hours to do it. In law school, <laughs> same thing. So now it's everything, like everything you can imagine. Just everything. I procrastinate in my life. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. You know, at some point, the pain of not doing it becomes greater than the pain of doing it. And that's that's kind of the moment when you choose to act. And it sounds like for you, it needs to run right up until the deadline. So I wonder if your team needs to start giving you false deadlines for things. And then you're, you start thinking like, oh, this is actually due. And then uh, it turns out you had an extra two days. Is there anything else you can think of for people who routinely procrastinate? Like what, what is the root of it and what should they be doing? It's interesting thinking about this for creators because I do this so much. So I, I'm like trying to troubleshoot my own behavior. I think scaling it down can make it easier and make it maybe a little bit more of a game. You know, I find that I'm more likely to procrastinate on my workout if I think about the whole thing, if I think about the 45 minutes. But a lot of the time, I'll play this little game with myself where I say, well, forget it. Like, you don't have to do the whole workout. Just let's do the first set and see how you feel. And so it's actually the starting that's the problem. It's not the completing of the task. And so I think if you play with that question seriously, what would it look like to make it as easy as possible for me to start? In my case with writing, I will put off my, I found that what my biggest point of friction is with writing is choosing what to write about. I will debate for six hours over what topic I should be writing about next. Um, and then once I finally choose and write the first sentence, well, then the work is like kind of easy after that. Uh, and so the big challenge is have I pre-decided what I'm going to be working on? I also have noticed that I'm less likely to procrastinate. There, there are a lot of like business tasks that I will procrastinate on, like paperwork stuff or responding to emails that are kind of people kind of need a response, but it's not like hair on fire emergency or whatever. I'll, I'll put that stuff off for a month or two. Like, you know, people are just waiting and waiting and waiting. And I found that for all that kind of tasky stuff, I am much less likely to procrastinate on it if somebody's in the room asking me to do it and they're just like standing next to me. So I, I almost need to be like parented uh, over it. But we have come up with a strategy for that, which is my assistant comes once a week and we go through like those 10 or 12 things. It's almost, it feels good to get them done, but it's almost annoying to me because they only take like three minutes to do, but I've been waiting a month to do it. But I just needed her to stand next to me and be like, you need to do this right now and wait three minutes awkwardly while I do it. And then I give it, get done with it and we move on to the next one. And so there's kind of like this, uh, you could call it like James's procrastination hour where all the things that I've been putting off, we just kind of like work through those little tasks one by one. And then there's a question of like, are you procrastinating on not tasky, quick stuff, but like bigger picture things? Like I can think right now, one thing I'm procrastinating on is we have this new iPhone app coming out for building habits and there's a lot of material and content that needs to go in there, articles that I need to write and so on. And the team is waiting on me to write some of those articles so that they can finish creating the, the app and, you know, like getting it out there. And I know what I need to write about, but I just haven't sat down to do it. And so that's an interesting 
challenged because it's a bigger thing. It's not like I can't do it in three minutes. I need like three hours for that. And so I find for that stuff, I almost always either need one of two things. It needs to be scheduled. I need to have a three-hour block on my calendar that's like protected. And I, I have to focus on writing the first sentence like in minute one of hour one so that then I can use that. Or I need some kind of expectation externally. Like the writing that I'm always consistent with is the one that the audience is expecting. And so if I can figure out a version of that task where I could like chunk it down and write 15 minutes of it and then ship it to the audience, that'll definitely get it done. So anyway, those are uh, a random smattering of ideas related to procrastination from someone who struggles greatly with the same thing. Wait, so you have to tell me about this app. It sounds like something I need. It's a habit app. Yeah. So the app is called Atoms, A-T-O-M-S, and uh, it's launching this month. The number one thing my audience has asked me for over the last five years is some kind of habit tracking app. And so I finally uh, partnered with MetaLab, which is one of the best app design companies in the world. They've done Uber and a bunch of other apps that you've heard of. We created this killer app for tracking habits, building habits, learning about habits. So it's not only an app that allows you to track your habits and to um, build them and foster them, but also to learn about them. And so there's a wide range, there's like a content library and daily lessons for me and all sorts of things like that. It has the best of what Atomic Habits has to offer, but it also has a lot of uh, what I've learned in the five years since the book has come out. And so I'm excited to share it. I'm excited to see how it goes. Um, it'll be coming out in a few weeks uh, by the time this interview goes live. And uh, yeah, so it's called Adams. You can check it out at jamesclear.com. And uh, you just got to click on app and uh, go from there. I need that. Maybe I can do my sugar habit in there and my workout habit and my going to sleep habit and <laughs> I can stack them there you all. Go. I hope it works well for you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'll update you. So question about atomic habits. Do you think you got anything wrong in it? Do you think there's anything that you wish you would have written differently? That's interesting. There are some things I wish I would have emphasized more or that I wish I would have put in. Like earlier, I said, I didn't write this in the book, but I wish I had said, what would this look like if it was fun? You know, and kind of asking yourself that question. There's some things that maybe I would rearrange or like I would emphasize the influence of social environment on your habits more, friends and family and the groups that you belong to. I wrote about that a little bit, but I think it has an even broader impact than I realized initially. I actually just had a fact checker go through the whole book and do like a deep fact check of it. And I we didn't come across any major errors. So that's that's good. I haven't found anything that I would delete or wish wasn't in there. But there's always things that I think could be better or examples that I would have improved. Uh, and those topics about social environment and what would this look like if it was fun are the two things that I think I would have emphasized more. Why do you think social environment is so important in keeping habits? We don't realize this because the the effect of it is so pervasive and so normal almost that we it's almost like breathing air. We don't even think about it. But humans are very social creatures. And one of our deepest desires is to bond and connect. We all want to be a part of something, even if it's just your little family unit or your little friend group. Like, you know, we all want to belong and, and connect. And if people have to choose between, you know, I have the habits that I don't really love, but I fit in, I belong, I'm part of something. Or I have the habits that I want to have, but I'm cast out, I'm ostracized, I'm criticized. A lot of the time, the desire to belong will overpower the desire to improve. And so you need to get those two things aligned. And I think the, the punchline is you want to join groups, to join tribes, where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because if it's normal in that group, if the people around you are also doing those things and acting those ways, 
it's going to be much more motivating and natural. It'll be much more attractive for you to stick to it. We don't only perform habits because of the results they get us. We also perform habits because of what they signal to the people around us. Hey, I get it. I fit in. I understand how we act here. I know what it's like to be a part of this. And so if you can get those things aligned, you can fit in and belong and build relationships and also be moving in the direction of the things that you want to do. And if they're misaligned and you got to choose between adding friction to the relationship or doing the thing you want to do, I, you know, a lot of the time people are going to choose to keep the relationship smooth and just kind of like skip the habit for that day. We see that a lot in finance where if you have a financial goal, but then your partner is not aligned on that financial goal, it's very, very hard. There's a lot of friction. Yeah, I would say, you know, marriage, partner, you know, relationships, roommates, things like that. Relationships that were especially where you're living together can make the finance stuff hard because it's not just about one decision a day. It's like decisions every day that are always coming out. It's a battle that has to be fought anew and anew and anew. So it is really important to get aligned on those things. I think this is kind of obvious, but it is remarkable how many relationships don't have good communication. I think the first step is like, we just got to talk about this stuff, you know, and it doesn't, we don't need to like make it a value judgment or to try to get mad or emotional about it. But it's just like, hey, I just want to chat about this. This feels like it's becoming increasingly important to me. And I think if it's, if it's important to me, I want to make sure that we're on the same page about it. And uh, I want to see how you feel about it too. And I'm hopeful that we can come up with a version of this that's going to work for both of us. Uh, and I, I think it'll benefit us in these ways. But I want to make sure that we're doing this together. And I'm not just like trying to do it on my own. And you don't even realize that you're creating some friction when, you know, maybe you don't intend to. Uh, and so if we can get on the same page, then maybe that'll make all this easier. And I think I think having conversations like that is a good first step to trying to get those relationships aligned. So I know a lot of people, myself included, are excited about this new year and achieving new things and hopefully creating new habits. What are three things that you want them to be able to walk away and apply today from your lessons? Okay, so I think some of these are questions Some of that I want you to ask yourself. Some of them are tactical things I'd like you to do. So first question that I think I'd like you to ask is, most of the time I sit down and I think about what habits I want to build, I think about the results I want. But I think the first question I want you to ask is not, what do I wish to achieve, but who do I wish to become? So how are my habits casting votes for my desired identity? How are my habits reinforcing the kind of person I want to be? So sit and think about that for a little bit. What is the identity you want to have? And what are one or two small actions that can cast votes for being that kind of person? Once you've figured that out and you've figured out what you're going to try to build or what habit is important to you, the second thing that I want you to ask is walk into the rooms where you spend most of your time each day. So your kitchen, your living room, your bedroom, your office, wherever it is that you're spending most of your time and look around and ask yourself, what is this space designed to encourage? What behaviors are obvious here? What behaviors are easy here? and start to make adjustments in your environment for the different behaviors and actions that you can take. So prime the environment to make your good habits easy and your bad habits difficult. So make some environmental adjustments there. And then the third and final thing is, in a lot of ways, I feel like the two timeframes that are most important to think about are 10 years or one hour. So, you know, 10 years is like, if you think about most of the meaningful things that you want to achieve in life, paying off your debt, saving for retirement, building a marriage that you're proud of, raising kids that are happy and successful, getting in the best shape of your life, launching a successful business, whatever it is for you. These are multi-year projects and they're big 10-year kind of picture things. 
And so that's most of the stuff that we want in life. Those are most of the big things that, you know, people like to work toward. And so keep that vision of what you're trying to ultimately achieve in your mind, but then scale it down to one hour and be like, what can I do in the next hour to make progress toward that 10 year vision? So when making plans, think big, but when making progress, think small. And I, I think you can even go more granular than that. And you can just say, how can I have five good minutes? You know, like five good minutes of exercise can reset your mood for the day. Five good minutes of conversation could restore a strained relationship. Five good minutes of writing can make you feel like the manuscripts move forward again. And so it doesn't take much to feel good about yourself again. And I think that's the, the third and final thing that I'd like you to do is think about where you really want to head and then scale it down to something you can do in the next hour or the next five minutes and try to take some small step today that gets you closer to where you want to be in 10 years. That's really good. I took a lot of inspiration from you for things that I now teach in personal finance. And one of them is about investing. A lot of people are really scared to invest because they feel like they need to have all of this money to invest. But my big thing now is here is how to invest with $10. All you have to do is get started to, by investing with $10. Because once you invest with that first $10, then you realize it's not as hard as you thought it was. But when people think, oh, to invest, I need to have $1,000, then it prevents them from even starting to invest. So I really like your philosophy of really breaking these things down into what can I do in an hour or what can I do with $10? You know, it's almost always the case that it's easier to improve a modest start than it is to start perfectly. And so getting started is the thing that matters most. It's getting in the mix, getting a little bit of feedback, and you'll learn a lot. And you also realize that you don't need it to be perfect to begin. And so giving yourself permission to begin with five minutes or with $10 or with one sentence or whatever it is, is a great way to get in the mix, learn a little bit, and then you can start to improve and uh, expand from there. This has been so inspiring. I'm very excited for my 2024 goals now with James Clear personally advising me. So we have a closing tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about James Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away saying, James Clear taught me this? Hopefully they'll say James Clear taught me how to build better habits. And one of the things that we have talked about all day is a variety of different tactics and strategies for building good habits and breaking bad ones. Many different ways to make habits obvious, attractive, easy, satisfying, and so on. And ultimately, a lot of people will still walk out of this and think immediately about the goals they want to achieve. I want to lose a certain amount of weight, or I want to double my income, or I want to be more productive this year, or something like that. And instead, I would like to encourage you to think about the system that you're building. And so if I was going to put a little finer point on the language, what do I mean by goal and system? Your goal is your desired outcome. That's the target, the thing you're shooting for. Your system is the collection of daily habits that you follow. And if there is ever a gap between your goal and your system, if there's ever a gap between your desired outcome and your daily habits, your daily habits will always win. So almost by definition, your current habits are perfectly designed to deliver your current results. Like most of the outcomes in your life are a lagging measure of the habits that precede them. So like your bank account is a lagging measure of your financial habits, or your knowledge is a lagging measure of your reading and learning habits. Even silly stuff like the amount of clutter in your living room is a lagging measure of your cleaning habits. And so this is kind of like one of those ironic things about life. We also badly want better outcomes, but the outcomes are not actually the thing that needs to change. It's like fix the inputs and the outputs will fix themselves. Design better habits and you'll be carried 
kind of naturally to a different destination. And so for all of those reasons, I like to say, we don't rise to the level of our goals, we fall to the level of our systems. And so what I'm encouraging is for you to try to focus on building a better system this year, to create a better collection of habits that can carry you almost naturally toward the outcome that you want. Now, that doesn't mean that goals are useless, like goals are really helpful for setting a sense of direction, for getting clarity, for figuring out what you're going to optimize for and focus on. But goals are good for people who care about winning once. Systems are best for people who care about winning repeatedly. And if you really want to make progress again and again, you're going to need some kind of system, some collection of habits to get you there. And hopefully, the framework that we laid out today and the variety of ways to make your good habits obvious, attractive, easy, and satisfying, and your bad habits invisible, unattractive, difficult, and unsatisfying, hopefully that gives you the tools you need to build the system that can carry you where you want to go. This has been the best way to start the year. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity and a pleasure to talk. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.